Okay, thank you, Joni and, and preschoolers. You guys are dismissed, those going to the preschool class. And church, everyone else, please open up your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Now, after our gathering this morning, Britt and I and the boys, we will be headed to a, a family reunion uh, to see some of my extended family on my mom's side. And as I was thinking about my mom's side of the family, uh, I was reminded that the engagement ring that I gave Britt when I proposed, uh, that diamond in the ring is my mom's mom. So it's, a, it's from my mom's mom. It's, it's, it's been passed down in, in the family and um, pretty cool to be able to do that uh, when I proposed uh, to Britt. Um, as well as being a poor college student, as I was when I proposed, uh, the price was right uh, for the diamond. And so, but anyway, because of this reunion coming up, I'm thinking then about the diamond. I'm thinking about our proposal. And so go with me now in my imagination of my memory to proposing to Brittany uh, 16 years ago on the beaches of Gulf Shores, Alabama. I kneel down. I look up into her eyes and I say, Britt, will you marry me? Will you marry me? And, And in that question, there's a lot that is assumed that I'm asking. Okay, there, there's a lot that goes into that question. I'm, I'm asking, will you be my wife? Will you be my one and only? I mean, there's a bunch of other loser guys out there, and I have proven myself to be better than all of them, more loyal than them, more committed, more loving, a better dancer than any of them. And now I want you to be my one and only wife. Will you make me your one and only husband And thankfully, praise God, she said, yes. But what if, okay, what if, can you guys play the what if game with me this morning? We're going to think of a theoretical situation, all right? So don't think about us anymore. But what if a man gets down on a knee and proposes to a woman and he said, will you marry me? Will you be my one and only? And she said, wow, that's amazing. Yes, I will be your one and only wife. And then she follows it with a, and I would love for you to be one of my many husbands. I mean, you'll you'll be towards the top of my favorite husbands. You'll maybe even be the husband that I recognize on Sundays, the first day of the week. I will honor you as my husband that day. But there are others that I still want to enjoy the rest of the week. There there are others that I'm not ready to yet give up on. Also, there might be some in the future that, that, that I want to at least keep my options open. I mean, thinking of a scenario like that, it almost makes you sick to your stomach, doesn't it? You feel something is not right about that. It's just, ugh, it's, that's, not, that's not how that should be. That's not how that should work. That's not right. And I, and I questioned whether or not to use that illustration this morning because it, it does make me sick to my stomach to even think about a theoretical situation like that for anyone. I wouldn't want that for anyone. Because I believe that we all instinctively know that that is just so, so wrong. I also questioned using an illustration like that because this is not me trying to condemn or stir up shame in, any, in anyone's life of those of you who have experienced the pain of a spouse leaving or a spouse cheating or a spouse being unfaithful, of a broken marriage, 
That is not my intent in sharing that illustration with you this morning. We all, along with you, we feel some of the weightiness and the wrongness of that. It's not how it should be. It's not what God designed or desires. And listen, for those of you who have experienced this firsthand in in, in a past marriage, please be reminded this morning that God loves to meet us in our brokenness. God loves to redeem what has been lost, and God loves to restore what we have made a mess of. God loves to turn our broken stories into testimonies. And so take heart if, if, if me even bringing up a marriage illustration like that brings back past bad memories and shame and hurt. Take those to the Lord. Give those to the Lord right now this morning. But the reason that I bring up such a pain-inducing illustration is because in the verse that we are looking at this morning, in this first good word from our Father, I want you to feel the relationship that God wants with us. And I want you to see how we have typically responded to that. And I want you to not just know it in your head, I want you to feel it in your gut. Because in this first good word from our Father, we see that God deserves and desires to be our one and only God. Our one and only. He will not be one of our many gods. He does not desire to be the God of our Sundays and not the rest of the week. He does not desire to be the God of our spirituality and not the rest of our lives. The God who created us and saved us desires to be our one and only God. And so that's what he proposes to us this morning. The question is whether or not we will surrender all of our other idols, all of our false gods, all of our other lesser loves, and say yes to him. And it's why we continually gather every Sunday, every first day of the week, we gather because we have disordered and divided hearts, and we need to continually call one another together and commit again to one another and say yes to the Lord and no to all these lesser loves and idols and false gods that we've, we've started to collect. So last week, we started into this new sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And we're calling this the the 10 good words from our Father. And if you weren't here last week or haven't listened to the sermon, I'd encourage you to get on the website and and listen to that. Uh, Because in that sermon, I was trying to introduce and trying to set the table for us for these next 10 weeks so that we would all understand why as New Covenant believers, we believe it is beneficial to preach through the law of God. And last week, we, we, we saw a few things here as we introduced this series. We learned that the law and the gospel are not enemies, but they're actually friends. They're actually in a good relationship with one another. And we reminded one another, after having studied the book of Romans for the last year and a half, that we are not justified by the law, but instead we know that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The law leads us to the gospel, and then the gospel frees us to obey the law. 
But last week, we also understood that, I mean, the law portion of Scripture, it's really large. There's some strange ones. We don't know what to do with all of them. And so last week, we, learned that we looked at the uniqueness of these 10 good words from our Father, these 10 words that He spoke to the people of God directly. And we talked about the three uses of the law, the, the, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. And while we saw that there is wisdom and insight that can be drawn from the civil and ceremonial laws, we saw that we had to understand them in their context and that they were given to a specific nation and a specific time and a specific place. But underlying all those civil laws was the moral law of God, which is what we find in these 10 good words which we believe are still very applicable to the life of a believer, not for our justification, but for our joy. Do you guys remember that differentiation we've made? It's, this, is, this is not for our justification. This is for our joy. And for we know that from the New Testament that we're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love others. That's what all the, the two greatest commandments. But it's in the law of God that we learn what that means. I mean, what does it look like to love God? Do we get to just make that up and decide for ourselves what it means to love God? Or has he laid out how he wants us to love him? Has he laid out how, we, how it is that we are to love him? And we see that answered in the first four commands about how we are to love God. And that's part of what we'll start getting into this morning. But then we saw that in the last six commands, we see how to love our neighbor. We don't get to make up our, those definitions of what it looks like to love our neighbor. God has laid out his will for what it looks like to love our neighbor. And so hopefully you were convinced last week, and if not, hopefully these next couple weeks you will become convinced that the moral law of God still does have a role in a believer's life. For in it we see that the law reveals to us the heart of our Father, we see the law expose the sin that still remains in our own hearts. The law then leads us to Christ. And then once freed and empowered by the grace of God through Christ, the law guides us in how to live and how to love wisely and freely as children of God. Because you guys remember the context of Exodus 20. Right? We talked about this last, last week. The most important point of context in, uh, for Exodus 20 is that Exodus 1 through 19 comes before it. Right? These, are not, these are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. These are 10 good words that come to a free people to help them stay free and to not go back to living like slaves. God has already delivered. God has already rescued them. And now he's drawn them to himself and he's given them 10 good words to help them know how to continue to live as a free people should live. And so now this morning, we look at this first good word. We see in this first good word that God desires to be our one and only God. Our one and only God. In this first good word, we'll see the heart of our Father. We'll see the sin that's still in our heart. We'll be pointed to Christ. And then with our eyes fixed on Christ, this word will guide us in how to not go back to living like slaves. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's, the Lord's help in this. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize that this is your word and it is given to your people. And help me, Lord, be a, a, 
a faithful conduit of the, the message that you want to speak to your people this morning. Father, we ask that your word would be like a, a surgeon's scalpel in our hearts. That you would cut out and cut away anything that is not of you. That you would expose the sin that still exists in our hearts. That you would expose the idols that we've, 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 we've still had in our lives. And God, that you would free us from those things. Oh, as we look at your word, as we look at your law, as we look at your command this morning, may it point us to Christ. May you stir up in us a greater love for him, a greater love for one another. Oh, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Guide us. May these good words be for our joy. Keep us from going back to living like slaves to sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, church, look with me now at Exodus 20, verse 1. We'll start in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church, you might be surprised that we are stopping in verse 3 this morning as those traditions have numbered the Ten Commandments differently than others. Uh, kind of a fun trivia fact if, for those of you who are interested. Uh, my understanding is that Roman Catholics and Lutherans combine verses 3 through 6 all into one commandment, uh, but then they divide the command not to covet into two commandments. So we all still have Ten Commandments, but it's just divided up a little differently. And so don't be confused. If you see a list of Ten Commandments, and it's not exactly as what I'm preaching it to you this morning, but the majority of Protestants, I would say, have recognized that there's uh, how we are breaking down the, these Ten Good Words. Uh, but admittedly, there is an overlap between the first two commandments and how we understand them. And so both this week and next week, we'll feel like we're talking about very similar things, a very similar theme. As both commands center around this idea of idolatry. And so we might not get to everything today that you would expect me to talk about in talking about idolatry, because next week we're going to revisit this topic again. But I do believe, even though there's going to be some overlap between this week and next week, I do believe there is a distinction here with points of emphasis in both the first and second commandment, as in the first commandment, we are instructed primarily about who we worship, and the second commandment is primarily about how we worship. All right? The first commandment, it's, there's an emphasis on who we worship. Second commandment, an emphasis on how we worship. And in this first good word from our Father, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now this could be translated, you shall have no other gods before my face or in my presence. God is prohibiting his people in this command from worshiping any other gods. God is a monotheist. Which sounds like a reasonable request to us. 
Because most of us have grown up in a culture largely influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview, and therefore monotheism is the norm. And we're like, well, yeah, there's only one true God, so this is an, this is an easy one for us. Okay, no other gods, got it. But think about the context of the Israelites who were first receiving this command. God had brought them out of the land of Egypt, which was a polytheistic culture who worshipped many false gods, many of which God through the ten plagues just lays the smack down on and just humiliates them and shows how powerless they are compared to him. And now here in Exodus, he's leading them into the land of the Canaanites, who were also a people who worshipped many false gods. And so seeing where they have come from and where they are going, God is lovingly teaching them that he is the one true God and he alone deserves their devotion and their worship. He is their creator, he is their redeemer, and he alone deserves their exclusive love and worship. The one true God is not okay to just be one of their many gods. He alone is God. You see, God did all these signs and wonders in rescuing the Israelites from Egypt so that the Israelites, as well as the Egyptians, and eventually the Franklinites, that's us, in case you were trying to think about biblical times, I'm talking about us, the Franklinites, and eventually the rest of the world so that we would know that he is God alone. I love reading through the first part of Exodus and it talks about when the Israelites are finally now uh, uh, leaving, that, that, that they go out with a mixed company, uh, meaning that there's a lot of Egyptians with them. The Egyptians are like, okay, we've seen the work of your God. We understand now he is the one true God. We're going with you guys. And in Deuteronomy 4, 35, Moses will later, he'll, he'll record this. He'll say, to you it was shown, speaking of all the signs and wonders in Egypt, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Like God has, has put his work on display. There's not a question that, that he's got any rivals from the Egyptian gods. You see, what God commands is based upon who he is and what he has already done. God created his people for his glory and God redeemed his people for his glory and therefore he has exclusive rights on our love and on our devotion and on our worship. He is the one true God. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He has exclusive rights on our worship and our love and our devotion. Because listen, there are other spiritual entities out there that people can worship. Now to clarify, there are no other capital G gods, okay? We believe in one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there are created beings living in the unseen realm who we typically call angels or demons, depending on whose side they're on. But the Apostle Paul refers to them as principalities and powers, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. And so these lowercase g gods of Egypt 
and these lowercase g gods of the Canaanites and the Greek pantheon and the gods of the Roman Empire, listen, it's not as if these were just fake gods, like they were just made up from people's imaginations. Maybe some of them were, but they weren't all fake gods. God calls them false gods. These idols and these gods that people have worshipped throughout history Many were likely behind the curtain, empowered by demonic powers. Fallen angels who were seeking glory for themselves instead of giving glory to God. And so the reason that God does not want his people messing around with other spiritual powers is not because it's all made up and silly and a waste of time. It's because he doesn't want us to mess around with demons. It's because demons work through these idols in order to enslave people and distort and disrupt God's good design. Idolatry is not just a waste of time. It is spiritually dangerous. And I need you to understand that this morning. What what does Paul write to the Corinthians when he warns them of idolatry. I think sometimes, many times in my life, I've just thought of idolatry as kind of just a, a waste of time. You know, it's just, it's, just, it's just getting in the way of actually serving the one true God. But, but Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, he tells them to flee idolatry, not because it's fake worship, but because it's false worship. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, he says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Oh, church, who we worship matters. And our God, the one true God, he alone is deserving of our devotion and our worship. See, see your father's heart in this, okay? See your father's heart. He desires his children to keep themselves from idols. Why? Because they're fake? No, because they're false. Because there's an evil power behind them that wants to enslave them, and God came to free them. Idolatry is spiritually dangerous. You see, God also knows that life comes from worshiping the one true God. When we worship the creator, man, lots of life and good things are created in us. But on the other hand, when we, worth, when we worship creation, uh, death, destruction, disorder, chaos, which is really what it boils down to. Are you going to worship the creator or the creation. And didn't we learn this in Romans 1? This is who in God's wrath he gives over to the lusts of their hearts. It was in Romans 1 uh, verse 25. It was because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
You see, here's what we learn in this command about the human heart. Okay, we're starting to see some of God's heart in this. He wants to keep us from idols. He, he deserves to be, to be our one and only God. But we're starting to learn something about the human heart in this command. And what we learn is that we will worship something or someone all the time. We are created and designed to be worshipers. It's not a question of if we will worship. The question is, who will we worship? And if we are not exclusively worshiping and serving the one true God, we will find someone or something else to worship. We will create an idol of the heart and mind that we will set in God's place. And so maybe you aren't tempted to worship Baal or Molech or Asherah or any of the other false gods that the Israelites were maybe tempted to worship. But what idols do we make? And I... I realize we, we talk about this a frequent amount throughout our sermons, kind of the idols of our heart. This is one of our common application points that we go to. What, what kind of heart idolatry do we have going on? So this is maybe not anything new that you have heard this morning. This is a common theme, but I want you to see where that comes from. It's, it's stemming from the heart of our Father that He gives to us in the first commandment. What idols of the heart and the mind are we making? Martin Luther, a quote we'll have up here on the screen. He says, That now I say, upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. He's saying that this is... This is This is your functional God in a certain situation. Whatever you're setting your heart upon and putting your trust ultimately in, that in that moment is a functional God. It's it's, it's an idol. It's something that has taken the place of God in your life. What do we set our heart on and put our trust in instead of God? Is God our one and only God? Now, here are some diagnostic questions to ask yourself as you try to diagnose if there's maybe an idol in your heart right now. First question, what are you angry, frustrated, or disappointed about not having? Like, is there something right now in your life that you're angry about, frustrated about, disappointed about, that you don't have a certain something? Like, maybe, it's, maybe you're frustrated with how God has made you and wired you and the, the strengths and weaknesses He's given you and your physical attributes. You don't have what you see others have and you want that. Maybe it's a certain job or a certain salary or a certain amount in the bank account or a certain position of influence, a certain amount of control or power, and you're angry and you're frustrated and you're disappointed that you don't have those things. What are you angry, frustrated, disappointed about not having? Here's another question. What are you anxious about losing? What are the things that you have right now that if you lost, you just wouldn't be able to live without. So you're anxious about losing those things. 
What if I lost my good health? What would happen then? You start spiraling in anxiety about it. What if I lost a certain relationship? What if I lost a certain loved one? What if, what if God took something from me that I really want and I already have? What are you anxious about losing? Another question. What have you lost recently that you are despairing about? And I'm not talking about just some grieving or some normal sadness. I'm talking about despairing about. Could these things be idols in your heart? Things that are competing with God's place that he alone deserves to have. Listen, if you are struggling with anger, with anxiety, or with despair, there could very likely be some idolatry going on in your heart. What are you setting your heart on and putting your trust in instead of God? And church, idolatry is not something to mess around with. It's more dangerous than we think. This could be a way that you're, even though you're, you're free in Christ, you're starting to live like a slave again. Pretty much anything you worship under, other than the one true God will enslave you, weaken you, and seek to destroy you. And our Father knows this, which is why he's given us this good word. He knows that we will become like what we worship. And I want you to see an illustration of this in Psalm 115. So hold your spot in Exodus 20. Flip over to Psalm 115. for an illustration of what it looks like to become like what we worship. As you're turning there, I'll, I'll start into it. The first three verses I read for our call to worship this morning says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Church, our God does all that he pleases. He cannot be manipulated or controlled like the false gods can. And take heart that the false gods cannot do all that they please. Only the one true God can do that. Our God is the creator, the sustainer of all. He does all that he pleases. Make note of his strength here. Because it is in worshiping the creator that brings life and strength to the worshiper. But we see the opposite of this happen as well. That when we worship creation, this leads to weakness and destruction. I'll read the rest of Psalm 115. Before I do, just a quick, a quick quote we don't have on the screen. I'll just read to you. It's from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, an, an English poet from the 1800s. In her poem titled Idolatry, she says, How weak the gods of this world are lowercase g gods, how weak the gods of this world are, and weaker yet their worship made me. Okay, now, now, now see this in Psalm 115, verse 4. See how the worship of them, how weak it makes us. Look at this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Here it is, verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. You see, when we do not obey this good word from our Father, when we worship other false gods and idols in addition to God or in place of God, we become like what we worship. You see, God is concerned with us not breaking his word, but it's because he knows that by breaking his word, we are actually breaking ourselves. We're not living in accord with his design for us. And the designer knows how life works best. He knows how life flourishes and grows strong. You worship some idols alongside of God or in place of God, and you become like them. You become spiritually mute. You don't know what to pray to God anymore. You don't know how to speak truth anymore. You become spiritually deaf. You feel like you can't hear from God anymore. I mean, you used to hear from him. You used to get that prompting of the Spirit. You used to feel his guidance, but you can't hear from him anymore. You become spiritually numb. You can't feel God. You can't can't sense his presence with you anymore. You used to feel that. That was such a sweet feeling when you felt that, but now you can't. You're spiritually numb. You become spiritually paralyzed. You feel like you can't walk with God. You used to go on long walks with God. You used to walk with him and grow with him and, and go to wherever he called you, but you can't walk with him anymore. You feel spiritually weak and mute and deaf and paralyzed and stuck. And there are lots of reasons for going through maybe some dry seasons in your walk with God. And there could be a number of different factors contributing to that. But one of the main reasons for those times is idolatry. It's because we are becoming like what we are worshiping. It is when our lives are not aligned with this first good word from our Father that we become just spiritually numb, stagnant. What are you worshiping alongside of or in place of God? God knows that the best thing for you is for him to be your one and only God. It is what is in your best interest. We will worship someone or something. God alone is the one true God who desires to be our one and only God. But church, hear me now. All of our, all of our past and present idolatry should not lead us to despair forever. So let us not fix our eyes on them too long. But let us instead look to Christ, the image of the invisible God. For Christ knows that we are a people who have gone after other gods. There isn't one person in here who hasn't gotten caught up in some sort of idolatry. But thanks be to God 
that just as the prophet Hosea went and redeemed his wife who had gone after other lovers and found herself enslaved, so Christ has come to redeem his bride, the church. And it is in the life of Christ on earth that we see him keep the law on our behalf by refusing to bow down to any other false gods. For just as the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, so Christ went to the wilderness for 40 days, but he did not bow down to false gods like the Israelites and we have. When Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he told him that he would give him these if only he would fall down and worship. What do we see in Matthew 4, verse 10? Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Church, praise God, Jesus obeyed where we have failed. Amen? Praise God. And by doing so, he has secured for us our righteousness in him. And he then went to the cross like a loving husband takes responsibility for his wife and kids. So he took responsibility for our sins and idolatry and he paid the penalty that all idolaters deserve to pay. And three days later, he rose from the dead, securing our resurrection, our new life with him in his presence. And it is when we trust Christ that the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and applies to us what Christ accomplished for us. And just as God is the one and only God, so too Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and man. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said something very similar in John 14, verse 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, we live in a polytheistic and pluralistic culture now as well. And not many will persecute you or hate you if you say that Jesus is a Savior or that he is a way to God. But to say that he is the Savior, that he is the only way to God, well, that is offensive to many. But if it is true, and I absolutely believe that it is, and if the worship of any other power on earth other than this God of the Bible is some sort of participation with the demonic who seeks to disrupt, enslave, and destroy us, then this is absolutely a good and loving word from our Father that we must share with others. That he desires and deserves to be our one and only God. And think about this, church. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who came to die on your behalf, the God who has orchestrated your life in such a way that you have heard the gospel and many of you have responded with faith, 
the God who tracked you down in your idolatry and opened up your eyes to the truth, that God, the one true God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and does all that he pleases, that God desires to be your one and only God. How amazing is that? And is he not worthy of that? Shouldn't our hearts overflow with gratitude with that thought? Shouldn't that switch our way of thinking and that, you know, sometimes we think that we have to worship God and all we say and do. Shouldn't that switch that thinking to a, we get to worship God and all we say and do. Our heavenly father speaks truth and love and knows what's best for us. That's why his commands are in fact actually blessings. This is a blessing for us. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. O church, see your father's heart in this good word, that he is the one true God and he alone deserves our worship. He knows that worshiping the creation, uh, excuse me, he knows that worshiping the creator leads to life while worshiping creation leads to destruction and anger and anxiety and despair and all those things we experience when we're caught up in idolatry. See in this command the sin that is exposed in our own heart, that we are always worshiping something, and in our sin we are prone to want to worship creation instead of the Creator. But see how this also leads us to Christ, who came and obeyed this command on our behalf and was crucified for our idolatry. And now for those who have been freed and empowered by the grace of God through faith in Christ, how does now this good word guide us to live wisely and freely as children of God? Well, think about this. A couple, a couple more scriptures real quick. One that we've already seen before, Matthew 4, verse 10. This was the verse that Jesus spoke to Satan when he was tempted to bow down before him. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, if you want to live and love wisely and freely as a child of God, then you must seek by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to worship God and serve him only in all of life and in all parts of your heart and mind. Paul says a similar thing to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 4, he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This is our, this is our aim. This is the aim of a believer. A child of God is now free to seek to worship and serve and please the Lord in all things, in all spheres of life and in all parts of our heart, to do all for the glory of God. You don't have to serve the idols of your heart anymore, church. You're not enslaved to them. I know it sometimes feels like it, but in Christ, you're not. And so don't go back to living like a slave. What are the idols of your heart? What are the idols of your household right now? 
What are you enjoying more than Jesus right now? Because of sin, we have divided and disordered hearts, and therefore we continually need to be confessing and turning from sin and asking God to, to help us to, not, to, to have undivided hearts, to have hearts that are wholly His. And so there might be some things that you are enjoying more than God right now, and God might be prompting you this morning to Surrender those things to him. And maybe some things just need to be surrendered to him for a time. Now, if, if it's something that you know is sin, then he's calling you to surrender it forever to him. But many times the idols of our heart, they can be good things that have become ultimate things, good things that have become God things, good things that have taken the place of God in our life. And those we might need to let go of for a time. We might need to practice the spiritual discipline of of fasting from those things for a while. While we wait upon God to heal our divided hearts and make them wholly His. Sometimes we don't realize how much an idol has a hold of us until we do try to give it up. So maybe entertainment is that for you. Nothing necessarily wrong just with that category of entertainment, but maybe we've, we've looked to entertainment too much to give us our comfort and our rest and our pleasure in life. We've started to enjoy it more than Jesus. We've started to run to it quicker than we run to the Lord in our time of need. And maybe we do need to, to, to take a fast from, for a time from entertainment so that the Lord can, can heal our divided hearts and, and make them wholly His, so that we can return to this category of entertainment and instead do it in a way that seeks to please our one and only God through the use of it. Or how about this? What are we looking to for our approval and acceptance more than God? Maybe for you it's the idol of your body image how you appear to others. Is is looking in the mirror and how you appear to others what you are looking for for your acceptance and approval in life? Maybe you need to fast from looking in the mirror for a while. I know that's maybe a scary thought. But maybe every time that you would go look in front of the mirror, maybe you need to go look in God's word and see what God says about you more than what you see of your physical appearance. We seek to obey this first good word from God every time we gather in corporate worship. We're, do, we're doing it right now. This is one of the ways that we are trying to wisely and freely as children of God live and love according to this command. We realize that we need to gather together because our hearts need to be led in, wor- in the worship of God. Our hearts need to be led by God's word in his worship. We need to continually be pointing one another to, to Christ so that our divided hearts can be made whole for him. So that our disordered hearts could put him back in his proper place. O 
O church, in a similar way to the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, God sees where we have come from. He sees, he knows your past idolatry. He's, he's seen it. He's, he's aware of it more than I am. God sees where we have come from. And he came to rescue us from it so that we would worship him and him alone. God also knows the world that we are about to be sent back out into. And listen, church, there is no temptation that is not common to man. And God will be faithful. Our God is the one true God, and he alone deserves our devotion and worship. In his first good word, he says, you shall have no other gods before my face, no other gods in my presence. And I love the, the picture of this that we see in, in 1 Samuel 5. I won't have you turn there. I'll just summarize it for you. But this is where the Ark of the Covenant gets captured by the Philistines and it's brought into the house of Dagon, their idol that they worshiped. And so you've got the, the, the tabernacle or the, excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Which is sort of God's mobile hotspot of his presence in that time next to this false god, this idol that they worship. And they come in in the morning to find the idol face down on the ground before the presence of God. Idols do not stand long in the presence of God. And so they take the idol back up and thought, well, maybe there was a gust of wind or something. They stand him back up. Next morning they come in, idol back down, face down, this time head and hands cut off. Church, all of creation will bow down before the one true God. All idols will fall broken at his feet. Will you throw yours down before him this morning? We have to do this every Sunday. Will you surrender your idols once again to him or will you continue in your idolatry? Will you once again, day after day, including today, surrender your complete devotion and worship to him for his glory and for your good? I pray that you will. I pray that whatever God is prompting or convicting of, any idolatry in your heart this morning, that you would confess that to him, that you would surrender that to him, that you would let go of that and cling to him and him alone. And my prayer is that you'd be able to echo Joshua, who said to the people of God in Joshua 24, 15, he says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray.